Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. I want to dedicate my talk tonight to my new son. His name is Olin Winter Stone. And I have no idea what day it is, so I don't even know how old he is. Uh, last week on Tuesday, uh, when I got home, Karina was having contractions that were kind of moderate. And then it went on then it stopped all day Wednesday and started again Wednesday night. And then it just kind of like built up. And then um, uh, we kind of had a birth plan, which is um, we, we didn't want the midwives to come over for as long as possible so that we could just, you know, be together at home. And then uh, the plan was our friend Kate was going to come over and just cook and uh, um, my friend Steve was going to take care of my son. And, um, and then Wednesday at about 11.30 at night, our friend Andrea, who was on her way to Montreal, uh, her and Karina had this plan that if Andrea was in town, she would um, film the birth. So it was 11.30 at night, and Andrea texted from the, sub, from the bus station saying, I'm so torn, I don't want to leave, it's too bad the baby didn't come, you know. And I texted her back and I said, come here now. (laughs) Um, So anyways, it was really beautiful labor because, well, first of all, anyone who has kids knows, and it really is true, it's easier the second time. It's much easier. I kind of knew what to expect, how it rolls. Um... But we had so much support downstairs with, like, food and dishes being cleaned that I could just be right there with Karina. And it was really powerful. At one point, uh, the midwife, like, would come over and check on us and then leave. And at one point, she's like, you guys haven't moved in nine hours. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And then the baby was born on Friday at 12.08, so just afternoon. And, uh... It was, the snow was blowing outside, and it was all really good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, we've just been really quiet at home since then. Uh, Everybody's well wishes are so appreciated. Um, um, We decided not to really have visitors or, you know, 
the highlight of the first day was Matthew Remsky came over with like more doll and dates and ghee than anybody could eat in a lifetime, I think. <laughs> that was like all we did day one. And um Yeah, we've just we've just been in bed and being really quiet. So it's like it's so strange to be here. Um, the baby smells amazing. <laughs> All the folds in his skin smell really good. He fits from my inner elbow to my palm, so I just hold him with one hand. Um, today he fell asleep while I was trying to make dinner for Karina, so I just put him in the laundry basket. <laughs> Highlight of day three was Sarah Nixon's peanut butter cookies. <laughs> um, anyways, that's how it's gone. So thank you everybody for all your support and emails and you know, whatever, whatever else. That's about all I can say. It's so hard to talk about these things, you know. So. Um, I'll start with a poem. I've been thinking a lot about this poem because uh, one of the things that Karina and I have done every day for the past uh, month or so is we've gone to High Park and we've just walked in the snow in the trees. There's this one section where there's all these uh, cherry blossoms and plum blossom trees and so we always like measure how much snow is on them. And um, my my friend Peter Levitt uh, has a beautiful poem about this, which is actually quoting the 13th century Zen teacher Ehe Dogen. Um, Dogen says, uh, "Spring is within a plum twig, bearing the snow cold." So spring is within a plum twig. Can everybody picture this? So you have like this little twig on a plum plum tree that's bearing snow. Do you know what that looks like? Has anybody been to High Park this week? Well, I haven't been there this week. Last week. Um, So uh, Peter wrote a beautiful poem about this line called Within Within. Um, No one can say what this life is. Snow, spring, plum twig and bearing, each thing is cold, cold, cold. And cold, cold, cold is snow, spring, a plum twig and bearing. This is within, and this is what is within. Bearing sorrow in silence or holding our happiness for the world are just plum twigs bearing snow. Shouting joy at passing cars or whispering I'm going to kill myself is the heat of petals in winter, the blossoming of snowdrops in spring. Don't try and don't quit. That's the best I can say. People who love you and people who need you and people you love and those you hate come to the same thing. No matter how you turn, you can never turn fast or far enough. There is no escaping the ten directions 
or 10,000 things, even when you die. So, take it easy, have a Cuban cigar. (laughs) Your shoulders are as wide as the path is wide. Your heart as open as one blossom, two snowfalls, three bows to the east, and four kisses, one on each cheek. (laughs) I love that ending. Four kisses, one on each cheek. So tonight I want to talk about this theme, uh, Within Within, which will be my heavily interpreted commentary on the uh, chapter 4 of Shantideva's Bodhicharyavatara, which is the, the text we've been studying together. So last week I talked about practice, and I think I said a hundred or two hundred times that it's really important that you practice. Uh, All of us here are so smart. We're so sophisticated. We're so clever. We read a lot, and we spend a lot of time on good websites. And also, just knowing about your life is not going to show you who you are. Practice is not the same as just knowing about practice. All of us have had spiritual experiences. Uh, All of us have had interesting mystical experiences. Uh, Even those things are not the same as having a long-term practice. So I encourage you to really penetrate what it means to practice every moment. I should start every talk like this forever. Practice allows us to look much more closely at the life that we're living, not the life we think we're living. Uh, In the training that I did to start my career doing whatever I'm doing, um, we called practice mindfulness. And... uh, I think mindfulness accurately describes and teaches us how to be here fully, moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. Uh, I call this practice intimacy. To be intimate with what's really going on in your life, in this moment, right now. It doesn't have to be any grander than that. Buddhists have so many different kinds of language for talking about taking a closer look or just getting closer. When I uh, study with my teacher, Enkyo Roshi, when we do interviews, we sit so close to each other, I can feel the warmth of her face on my face. 
So I do that practice with students now also. Many of you know, when we meet, we sit really close together. There's nowhere to hide for either of us. And when I was in Japan, for the first three weeks that I was there, the place where I practice, uh, you go and you meet the teacher sometimes two, three, or four times every morning. So the way it worked is you do sitting and walking meditation, and the teacher gives you something to work on, and you have to work on it really hard, because you might get called to go meet him, and he'll say, okay, show me. And when you go meet him, you have to sit really close to his face. There's nowhere to hide. And even if your practice really sucks, and you're not getting anywhere, which happened to me a lot, um, no matter what, you show up face to face. And some of you know in the Mahayana tradition, Uh, the passing of practice is called face-to-face transmission. Because it literally means face-to-face. That we all have to come face-to-face with what's really going on in our lives. Face-to-face with each other interpersonally, and also face-to-face with all those rascals inside of us. Sometimes it's really easy to be face-to-face, like with my son right now. He has the best face. It changes. every. It's ama- well, when he was born, he was just a conehead. He had, a, he had Karina's pubic bones bruised onto his head. It's kind of sexy. Let's not put that in the blog. (laughs) I can just see the image you're going to use. But the practice is saying to us over and over, come closer. Come closer. There is something really powerful about awareness in its simplicity. Just its raw simplicity. And I think all of us, as I was saying a few minutes ago, we're so smart and so sophisticated. I even find myself this week, I've been reading this book, it's, you know, in the bathroom, and uh, I'm really interested in this uh, scholar of religion named Robert Bella, who is kind of not a popular scholar, but it's really fascinating. And... um, his arguments are so sophisticated and so nuanced, and I love it. I love sophistication. We all love sophistication. But actually, um, to balance the over-sophistication of our culture, we also really need to know just the nature of basic, simple awareness. To pay attention Our kids need us to pay attention. Our families need us to pay attention.
And we notice when we pay attention, as we're paying attention, we're already predisposed to reactivity. Can you feel it in your body, even just sitting here? You can pay attention a little, and also your body has these built-in reactions. Grabbing on to certain things I'm saying, getting images of them and going off. Reacting to other things. I don't have a baby. Maybe I should have a baby. I've never really wanted to have a baby, but it sounds so easy. Maybe I should get one of those. But I don't know where to get one. Maybe I should get a husband. I don't want a husband. How am I going to find a husband? Maybe if I come to center of gravity, I'll find a husband. Not that many husbands here. Chapter 4 of the text that we're studying called A Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Um, The first half of the chapter is about conscientiousness. And um, the second half of the chapter is about working with emotions. To come face to face with emotions. Uh, In Pema Chodron's excellent commentary on this chapter... She says that the second half of the chapter is learning how to see the change underneath emotions. So what on earth are emotions? Emotions are really popular nowadays, uh, especially in therapy circles. Because in therapy circles, some people will fight you over what to do with emotions. Are they something to express? Are they something to observe? Are they something to become? Are they something to get rid of? And actually, uh, scholars keep trying to find a term for emotions in the old Buddhist literature, but they can't, because it's not there. Because back in the Iron Age, people didn't have such distinct categories for mind and body and Uh, emotions, and these kinds of things. Maybe the category of emotion is actually relatively new. It's a mixture of sensations, physical sensations, and mental conditions. Emotions are a placeholder for a whole contingent arising of phenomena. It's always a kind of complication. And that's why we need crystal clear attention to see the nature of emotions, to feel them. Here's what Shanti Deva says. This is uh, paragraph 32. Has anybody been following along? Or a few people? Just Ian. Um, all other enemies oh by the way I just discovered there's a really good translation of the text that Alan Wallace and his wife did um, and it's online and you can download it for free and it's color coded with many other translations behind it 
so that you can see their translation and what they pulled together to come up with their translation. And amazing footnotes. and So good. All other enemies are incapable of remaining for such a length of time, as can my disturbing conceptions. The enduring enemy has neither beginning nor end. If I agreeably honor and entrust myself to others, they will bring me benefit and happiness. But if I entrust myself to those disturbing conceptions, in the future they will bring only misery and harm. While in samsara, how can I be joyful and unafraid if in my heart I readily prepare a place for this incessant enemy of long duration? That's such a good line. I'll read that again. How can I be joyful and unafraid if in my heart I readily prepare a place for this incessant enemy of long duration? Does anybody have an incessant... This is so Stephen Batchelor, this translation. Does anybody have an incessant enemy of long duration in their heart? Yes, no. In the future, they will bring only misery and harm. How shall I ever have happiness if a net of attachment within my mind? If in a net of attachment within my mind, there dwell the guardians of the prison of psychic prison of cyclic existence. These disturbing conceptions become my butchers and tormentors in hell. Anyways, it goes on like this for a while. There's a whole <laughs> battle scene. <laughs> so, uh, the practice of getting closer, the practice of intimacy is engaging in a very clear and honest and courageous way with our own discomfort, not sanitizing it, and also our discomfort with the suffering around us. It doesn't happen just with paying attention. It also happens with having an attitude where you can allow whatever's showing up to show up. That that's built into your attitude. There's a Slovenian philosopher named Slavoj Žižek um, who really needs mindfulness. Um, don't put that in the blog either. Um, if any of you follow his work, you might know that he is on a university tour right now uh, critiquing Buddhism to no end. This is his current practice. Uh, he says, Buddhist practice is an opiate for the masses. Well, he actually said that nine years ago. Um, but what he did say recently, I'll read. Um, By the way, did anybody know, this is a tangent, that David and Victoria Beckham have a four-foot golden Buddha in their living room? (laughs) I wanted to email Zizek and tell him about this. (laughs) Here's what Zizek says. Buddhism enables you to fully participate in the frantic pace of the capitalist game. 
while sustaining the perception that you are not really in it, that you are well aware of how worthless the spectacle is, and that what really matters to you is the peace of the inner self to which you know you can always withdraw. I think this is a good critique, actually. Let's hear it again, okay? It's always hard to have someone criticize your practice. He's saying something really important here. Uh, Buddhism enables you to fully participate in the frantic pace of the capitalist game while sustaining the perception that you are not really in it, that you are well aware of how worthless the spectacle is, and that what really matters to you is the peace of the inner self to which you know you can always withdraw. I think there's a way where we can practice where we're turning ourselves into observers. Well, we observe our experience from a place of stillness and we see things as a dream or a mirage. We see everything as impermanent and it's really not so necessary to get involved. We can just turn to our inner peaceful self. And I think that this is extremely problematic because a lot of us actually get turned on to meditation practice because we're suffering so much and we just need a kind of interior self that we can withdraw into. And there's a place for that kind of practice. But something we really try and emphasize here is embodied practice. So here's how it works. When you inhale and exhale, you inhale and exhale. You feel inhaling and exhaling in your body. I like people to practice feeling the breath behind the navel. And some of you who've been trying this for years, you know that it's really tricky to feel your breath behind your navel. It's much easier to feel it in your nostrils. It's much easier just to think about it. It's much easier to visualize it. But when you can feel the sensations that make up inhaling and exhaling behind the navel, what happens is you stop watching them. You stop observing them. And you become breathing. There's so much feeling that you're not observing the breath anymore. In other words, there's breathing, but there's no observer anymore. Do you know this experience that I'm talking about? And I call this intimacy. Intimacy is the collapse of the observer. That's just standing back watching. Because actually, the reason why we suffer so much in our culture and why there's so much apathy is because we're all observers. We're just standing back watching hoping things will change, wishing things will change, not wanting to get dirty, not wanting to be uncomfortable. I have this in me. Don't you have this in you? All the excuses to not get in closer.
Yes, we need to practice to reduce stress. Yes, we need sometimes to be able to observe things without just being caught in them and to have the right distance from our reactivity. But then we need to plunge. Years ago, about three years ago, um, one question I had a lot is, how do you work with strong emotions like anger? Because uh, people are really mixed about this. Is anger something you express? Is anger something you let go of? Does anger have a purpose? Sometimes I think the first psychologist was Darwin. Because Darwin saw all of human emotions as um, uh, motivating. That the reason why, in an evolutionary perspective, emotions arise is because they motivate you to act. They motivate us to do something. Like, for example, embarrassment. Embarrassment is a great emotion because it stops you. Sometimes it goes too far. And sometimes it doesn't go far enough. But I think we've all had the experience where we've said something and then we got embarrassed. And then we realized, oh, maybe I just went too far. It stops you. It has a purpose. So I think that if we see our emotional life as uh, conditions coming together that have a purpose, that motivate you to act, then I think we have a good uh, response to Zizek's, I think, accurate critique. That actually our anger, our anxiety, our fear, they're motivating and they're not all your fault. They happen from, they happen, uh, many conditions come together for them to happen. The conditions are not all in you. So I would say that we have to look deeper than just this term emotion, because it doesn't mean anything. And to see the conditions that come together in a circumstance for that emotion to constellate. In mindfulness practice, we're slowing down to become intimate with those conditions that give rise to an emotion. Embarrassment, fear, joy. Emotions also have a huge effect on the choices that we make. When you're caught in an emotion and you can't see it, and you have no way to get some space, it has a huge effect on the kind of choices that you make. When you're feeling melancholy, what kind of things do you eat? What kind of music do you listen to? What do you surround yourself with? 
And then there's this kind of feedback loop, where then what you eat then again influences how you feel. Okay? And what's happening in meditation practice is you don't want that loop to start getting faster, because as it gets faster, it starts contracting into a knot. And then you're just in a knot. The emotion, and and then that knot is what I think we call a mood. Being caught in a mood. So, um, in uh, the early collection of the Buddha's teaching, there's a text called the um, Abhidharma. We should study it sometime. We'd lose half the Sangha if we ever studied that text. It's so dry. Um and uh, one of the words that shows up a lot in that text is uh, kalesha. In, in Pali, it's kalesa, um, which refers to unwholesome emotions. Sometimes it's translated as defilements. Um, and one of the words that uh, shows up a lot in describing the kalesas is asava. Um, which means uh, flowing towards. And asava is the term that's used to talk about energies that we would call emotions. That emotions flow towards us. And there are four types of asavas, and they're really interesting. One is unwholesome emotions related to sensual pleasure. If anybody here ever gets like a feeling of ick with the word unwholesome, because it sounds kind of Victorian or something, just go a little deeper, because it's actually a really interesting word. Uh, Unwholesome. To to not recognize the wholeness, or to pull you out of the wholeness of a moment. Unwholesome emotions related to sensual pleasure. The second is unwholesome emotions related to becoming. The emotions that I, I would call that the emotions in striving. Unwholesome emotions related to ignorance and unwholesome emotions related to dogma. I like that one. Then there's a second subset, uh, negative emotions. Um, these are explained as deeply rooted tendencies. The first is the latent tendency of lust. The second is the latent tendency of dogma. The latent tendency of skepticism. The latent tendency of conceit. The latent tendency of clinging to existence. And the latent tendency of ignorance. I'm saying we have these built-in tendencies Ignorance, conceit, we all know them. The lists are helpful sometimes, though. (laughs) That flow towards us, that rise up in certain conditions. So what I want to talk about a little bit uh, now, more practically, is what do you do when these things arise? 
So as I was hinting at earlier, one method is the observing method. Strong emotions start to arise, and you stay with your breathing, and you just observe them. You just observe them. This is really powerful, I think, to get just the right distance from something. Oh, I started a story earlier that I never finished that I realized. Um, So I struggled with this a lot because, for me, uh, getting distance from emotions was extremely helpful in meditation practice and extremely unhelpful in my personal life. Because... Emotions, they would just show up, and I would just see them showing up, and then they would change. Uh, And what I was doing was I was cutting off the energy of the emotion that's motivating, which is, I think, what Zizek is critiquing. Where we don't see emotions as motivating, as mobilizing us, Socially, personally, interpersonally. So uh, a few years ago, I I spent some time with Bernie Glassman, and um, this is one of the questions I asked him. Uh, What what do you do when you're really triggered? What do you do when you're really triggered? And he said, oh, do you study koans? And I said, yes. And he said, well, when you do koan practice, what do you do with koans? And I said, oh, well, uh, you know the standard thing. When you get a koan, you, you become the koan. And he said, okay, that's what you do. And a, a light went off for me. This was a really, really helpful insight. Um, so I was talking about using your breath and just watching your breath and how there's a point where the observer falls away and you become your breath, well, you can do the same practice with emotions. So when anger arises, you become anger. You don't watch it. You just become anger fully with no self in it. You let yourself go on fire. But... You just don't talk. You don't do anything about it. You first just let yourself feel the the searing energy of anger. And inside that energy, there is a motivation to see something that needs to come to light. There is some seed in anger. Embarrassment is another example I use tonight. When you really allow yourself to feel embarrassed, there's some wisdom in there. But usually we can't get our awareness clear enough to allow ourselves to just feel those emotions because we, you, you, we anchor them to memories and expectations or we think acting on them is going to be dangerous dangerous. So I better not feel them, because I know in advance I'm not going to act on it. I had this this week, because 
my mom said, my mom is in Florida because she's Jewish. (laughs) And it's winter. Um, She said, she's in Florida until April 1st. So she said to Karina and I, when you have the baby, I'm going to come to to Toronto. I'll I'll fly up just for for a few days just so I can be with the baby. So we were really excited about this. So then we called her the other day, and she's like, oh, well, I'm really excited to see the baby on April 1st. (laughs) I was so angry. When my first son was born, I couldn't get my mother far enough away from my house. Now I can't even get her to come to my house. So, um... So then, you know, I just left it alone. I was like, oh, it's my mom. She has this, she's a bit dyslexic around these things. You know. But it was really stewing, and I thought, oh, I have to give a talk on mobilizing energy, so I have to do something. So then I called my mom, and I said, I feel really disappointed, because you said you were going to come visit the baby when the baby was born, and everybody else is like knocking down our door to come see the baby, and you don't even want to come see the baby till April 1st? That was an email. <laughs> and so she wrote back, You were so angry at me the first time you had a baby. <laughs> because you said I was, I was trying to be there every day, and you just wanted some space. I can't do anything right. (laughs) So I'm just trying to give you some space. And I said, but we've been talking for a month about how this time I don't want you to give me so much space. (laughs) And actually, I guess because I just feel calmer this time around, Um, uh, the whole thing just kind of de-escalated. And she said, oh, well, you know, you you invited Karina's mom to come for a month, and I just thought she could be there, and then when her month ends, then I'll come and I'll help. But, you know, we didn't hear it that way. But when my first son came, which was a decade ago, that would have turned into a really dramatic event. Right now, I would be probably stewing whether I'm going to call her or not. (laughs) And also, I think, deep down, under the surface of just feeling those things, there are these asavas, these kind of latent tendencies that flow towards us. Like, maybe we would call them archetypes. Baby's there, you want a mum. So the real question is how you can create a container for strong emotions without creating more negative karma, without adding embarrassment on top of embarrassment, anger on top of anger, shame on top of shame. When I was uh, spent more time teaching therapists 
uh, I used a uh, acronym a lot to talk about working with strong emotions. And so I just wanted to end tonight with this acronym because it's a practice that you can take with you. Um, it's called SANE. Uh, e- therapists love acronyms. Uh, S A I N. You can write this down. SANE. Uh, the S means stop. Anger is arising, you stop. We are a culture of runners. We run with things, we run away from things. It is so powerful to have a practice where you know how to stop. Just to stop. Does anybody ever say to themselves every once in a while, I just really need to stop. I do this when I get sick. I'll say to myself, God, I just, I couldn't stop. I needed to get sick because I just couldn't stop. So when something turbulent is starting to arise, the big tidal wave is coming, the first thing you do is you stop. The second practice is allowing. You stop and you allow what's moving through the body to fully arrive. To really feel it. To stop and allow. But you can't allow something into awareness if you can't stop. Because it's not really allowing it in. You have to be able to stop. Some people, they have to stop themselves because if they open their mouth, they're going to say something really hurtful. Is anybody like this? I'm the opposite. I'm like, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to disturb anybody. So I actually have to stop and look at that. And then to allow what I feel. To allow it in. The third stage is investigate. Stop, accept what you're feeling, and then investigate it. Check it out. How is this showing up? Where is this showing up in my body right now? What's showing up? Everything but why. Where, how, what, when. When does this show up? I think I talked about this a few weeks ago. How um, I have this person in my life who, when I engage with them, I get angry. All the time with this person. So they think of me as a really angry person. But actually, I don't get angry with anybody else in the way I get angry with this person. It's our karmic love. Does anybody have anybody like this? Where you feel a certain emotion with them and you don't really feel that with anybody. And then you also are aware that they see you only as that person. And you see them kind of only as that person. And then the strangest thing is, it's not impermanent. 
You every time you're together, it's like iron filings in a magnet. You know, it just <laughs> you go into that zone. <clears throat> Investigate it, and then the last phase, which is I think ob- <clears throat> obviously the hardest. <clears throat> so strange drinking water because for four days I've been making this um, it's called nursing tea for Karina but I've been obsessed with it it's so good it's the first time I've had water in days it's like choking me up everybody should have nursing tea when my son can't sleep I try to get him to nurse but he doesn't like the hair on my nipple. <laughs> feels really nice for me. What's nursing tea? What's nursing tea? What's I don't know what's in it. <laughs> Raspberry, motherwort, I don't know, various things. I'm not engorged yet, though. Um... Where was I going with that? What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So the end stands for uh, nurses. <laughs> okay, good night. <laughs> the, the N stands for non-identification or no ID. And that's this this uh, practice that I was saying that I really learned uh, from Bernie Glassman is um, when you have a strong emotion show up and you can stop and you can allow it and you can kind of check it out and you know what it is, maybe you have to label it even, then you need this last phase, which is to fully become rage. fully become a shivering puddle. And it's not just the negative emotions. We have to do this sometimes with positive emotions, especially people who really are like this. <laughs> you know, really up, really down. You can also work on this with positive when you're really excited. Try to stop. And just allow the excitement in, but don't identify with it. I'm really happy. Just feel it. Don't identify with it. So non-ID. It's not I, me, or mine. And this is a recipe for getting closer. More intimate. how to create a container and become those emotions and then allow them to pass. Not identifying with them. You know, in Japan, one of the practices, uh, one one of the things that we would do 
is uh, three services every day, and um, with so much more deity visualization that I expected. So, um, one of the ways that the temples are set up is you never look straight at a deity. There's always a curtain that goes to their uh, eyes or nose so that in order to see a deity, you have to bow down. And then you kind of look up at them. Uh, So you're bowing down, you're looking up at them. And we were often told during services, when you look up, really look at their form and let your body become their form. Because you experience yourself through your body and through your mind. What what moves through your body and what happens through your mind is what you think of as a self. So the basic idea is when you're constantly bowing to different deities you learn how to become that energy rather than just becoming yourself all the time. You experience yourself as that deity. And it's interesting to watch how different days certain deities really appeal to you and some really don't. And for those of you that that know uh, Japanese uh, uh, deities, they just took all the deities in the Hindu pantheon and they just made them Japanese. So they're just wild characters. And, um, and, uh, you know, some days you're wrathful. And the wrathful deities really speak to you. And to me, in retrospect, this was kind of like a training of how to feel these energies independent of how you want to make them. How to feel them in a more raw raw way. So, to stop, accept, investigate, and then don't identify. Don't act it out, don't act it in. Jack. So if you exercise or practice this approach to emotion, on what level does the motivation piece come in? Because I think so many of us, when we react to deep emotion, mm-hmm. it motivates us. Yeah. It motivates us in all the wrong grooves that we repeat over and over yeah. and then we get ourselves into trouble and yeah. So I can see how stopping and allowing and investigating and not identifying with the emotion mm-hmm. brings you to a different place. Yeah. Where is the motivation then from there? I, I think what happens is when when the acting out energy settles, then we still have the energy of the emotion. And then we run through that whole process again. So, oh, thank you. So, um... Or is the motivation in the change itself? In the change? No. I mean, yes, of course it is in, in the change itself. But also, I mean... This is what we call wisdom, right? Is being able to have the insight of experiencing an emotion, seeing it as contingent conditions, feeling its energy, 
letting it pass, and then taking that insight and working it. Right? So how do you work it? You check it out. You say, oh, well, I actually can see the... So, for example, with my mom. I shouldn't talk about this so much. but With my mom, I could feel what I was feeling, and then as it passed, I started to recognize, oh, here's the action that I can take right now. Here's what's motivating right now. And there were many different components. One is... I really want my mom to just meet this baby. Another one is, she doesn't listen. Another is, sometimes she doesn't communicate well. Another is, sometimes I don't communicate well. Another one was, this one was really hard, sometimes I don't listen. Right? Um, There's all these factors, you know, at play. But I can see them much more simply but but the but the energy of the anger brought them up but we want to hold on to some of that energy but not in a way that's going to be unwholesome that's going to cause harm and the ultimate resolution is what you were motivated to achieve i don't i for, i don't, i'm a little weary of ultimate resolution Sorry. Um, yeah it's too clean The ultimate resolution is I didn't yell at my mom. (laughs) Just approaching that whole relationship or scenario from a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't yell at my mom. What what I would have done is I just would have been like, okay, fine. And then I wouldn't have talked to her for a couple days. And that didn't happen. Yeah. Yes. Mara. Um, so the I for investigate, you mentioned we want to look at the how, the, uh, the what, and the when, but not the why. Yeah. So I, wa- I wanted to, that's something that I'm really trying to work with in my practice. Not I, why. I, I struggle with that because yeah. I feel like I... It's really hard for me to to not feel a need to look at the why, to wrap it all up and, and find a, you know. And my inclination is that the answer is in the why. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit about, about that, because I'm trying to just move into... Um, move into body sensation mm-hmm. and... and, and um, and keep in keep in keep in mind impermanence mm-hmm. to to guide my practice. Yeah. And um, but I, I still feel like oftentimes when it's when it's the really strong ones, yeah. that it's hard for me to let go yeah. of that. So I was, mm. could you just speak a little bit about that? About that? Actually, I think you just said it yeah. so clearly. Mm-hmm. Um. We, I, I think most of us, the first place we go is why. Why me? Why is this happening? Why now? And the, que- the why question tends to 
get the storyteller going hmm. and really keeps us out of embodied experience. So I think the whole why question should just be suspended when emotions arise and, and, and really get more into the place where there's contact between um, physical sensation and your reaction to it or your attachment to it and just spend more time there. So yeah. I, that's exactly what you said. Do. Um, yeah. I guess that the piece that keep that always, you know, and these are my sankaras and my just yeah. the stuff that keeps coming up for me. Yeah. But um, you know, it partly has to do with what what you were talking about in in terms of using using the emotion as motivator and mm-hmm. and, and and looking at what's what's underneath it. Yeah. So that's that's always where it, like okay, well, why? If I'm experiencing this sadness or this fear or this anger, yeah. to to exclude the why from it feels almost like I'm repressing something or I'm not looking something yeah. at something. And because I know in my practice, don't don't focus on the why. Yeah. They're they're almost it's almost like there becomes a fear of mm. of what's behind it. You mm. know, like if I'm not if I'm not supposed to look at it. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you understand? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does anybody else have some a response? I, felt, I always yeah. feel when there's something that I feel like I shouldn't do that I like if I tell myself that I'm obsessing about something and then I tell myself to not obsess about it then I might obsess more <laughs> but if I tell myself that okay, well I'm going to give myself if I'm on a bike I'll say like until I get to where I'm going um, I'm allowed to obsess completely. I'll just like completely obsess. Then I find it, I feel better because I give myself that room completely. And then if I stop obsessing, I'm like, no, you said you were going to obsess <laughs> for this whole time. So. <laughs> um, this relates really well for me to when you brought up um, viewing emotion as motivation. Um, and also that juxtaposed with um, the idea of embodying the emotion. Um, the question of intimacy really ties it together for me. Um, because looking at emotion as just motivation from a layman's perspective might seem like you would easily become victim of emotion, which is something I feel I've been trying to um, gain distance from. So I spend a lot of time using um, myself as an observer and actually estranging myself from the emotion, using my practice as a method for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way back into it was feeling the reaction with the emotion. And once I learned to stop the only way that I learned to stop asking why was because I realized I wasn't above any emotion just because I could observe it, that they were still mm. part of me, mm-hmm. and that the way they act as motivators is that they show that, that those things recur whether or not you have mastered them or not, that yeah. that's actually not the goal. And, and knowing why I feel something doesn't stop me from feeling it. Mm-hmm. 
and just to allow it to continue. Yeah. Mina. I feel like looking into why it might be useful in some cases, um, <clears throat> because um, we've been talking about the, how we need to deal with our hurt, where we've been wounded, and um, I, I do feel that some of our wounds show up as current emotions and our reaction to certain situations, and um, you know sometimes I think we don't want to associate it with the wound and we want to separate it or we're not aware that it um, is related to something that um, we feel deeply wounded about and in that case like making that connection and really trying to heal yourself might be very beneficial to how your emotions are show, showing up and how they may or may not, how you would have a relationship with that emotion in the future. Hmm. I think she just answered your question. <laughs> Thank you, Mina. Yes, was there a hand back here? Yeah. I also, I, I just wonder if it's not that the question why shouldn't be answered, but that maybe directly asking why right away is not the best way to go at it, so much mm. as asking, like, how am I feeling, and is there a pattern here, and just asking other questions first so that there's more of a deeper understanding of why mm -hmm. instead of a direct answer. Yeah. Yeah, possibly the answer comes from the other side. Is there a hand up? Simone. Um, I was just thinking about why within context, because I think that, the, like you were saying, the questions of why tend to bring up conceptualizations and mm -hmm. stories. But I do think that there is a kind of, um, we feel a response to a why question when there is insight. Mm. So like an insight into the causes and conditions of something feels like an answer to why. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe a difference between mm -hmm. asking a why question mm -hmm. and having that insight mm -hmm. is the here and now presence right. of that. So when you're in the presence of something, that the causes and conditions are in a sense there, mm -hmm. and not something that you're making up or thinking about, but are actively yeah. happening. Yeah, that, that's exactly what we mean by the non-ID, the non-adventure. You become the energy, and it it's an answer. It's an answer in a certain... It doesn't tell you what to do, necessarily. There's still thinking. But it, it, it shows you some of the pieces in a clearer way. So, thank you. Thank you. One more. Um, I want to say Lana, but is there a man who wants to ask a question or make a comment? I mean, I know men don't feel emotions so much. <laughs> really? Yes. I don't know exactly what I want to say, but I definitely connect to the question of why. I feel that I always, and I'm also stuck in that same place, 
Are you Jewish? And I know for myself that it's connected to it, like control. And I think that if I know the why, then I'll be able to somehow have some sort of power over it. And it feels like it's coming from a place of identification. My first day in Japan, I went to meet this teacher, this old guy, and he, we sat down, nose to nose, and he said, what comes before all of this? So all day I'd been really obsessed with cherry blossoms. So I said, cherry blossoms. And he said, what comes before cherry blossoms? So I said, the cherry trees in the wintertime. And he said, what comes before the cherry trees in the wintertime? So I said, cherry blossoms. (laughs) And he said in his broken Japanese, we can go on like this forever. And then he rang his little bell, which basically means you have to leave. (laughs) He was asking a question, and I was answering the question. That's not what he wanted. That's not what you want. You feel emotions. Why is this happening to me? You'll answer that question. That's not what you want. That's not really going deep enough. Some part of you uh, thinks you're going to be satisfied with that, but it's not. It's too superficial. So, uh, next week, the theme is going to be nursing tea. (laughs) I will bring the recipe. Uh, Guarding alertness. And then the week after... The topic is going to be patience, which is the sixth chapter. That's For anyone who's studied this text, it's the most famous chapter in this text, mostly quoted patience. Uh, the seventh chapter is enthusiasm. The eighth, the eighth chapter is meditation. The ninth is wisdom. And the tenth chapter, which I love, is uh, dedicating the practice. So that's where we're heading. Okay. Let's finish by chanting. Next week, the first question goes to Lana. Oh, and we were supposed to do the chant for the ill and the dying tonight, but uh, Elaine uh, had car troubles, so she couldn't come tonight, and she had the, the list, so we'll continue next week. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. Awaken. Awaken.
May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. 